This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for February 16th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Editor-in-Chief Eric Rubin and Deputy Editor Lindsay Baden. Eric and Lindsay, one of the striking consequences of the large surge in Omicron cases has been that the number of people who have an immune response due to infection has increased markedly. Today, we have a couple of studies that look at what prior infection means for the risk of subsequent infection. We also have a trial of what's likely to be the most important therapy we've seen for those at risk of developing severe disease. So altogether, an information-packed week. Let's start with how protection induced by infection compares with protection after vaccination. This is a study from the United Kingdom that looked at a cohort of healthcare workers. What question did they ask? Steve, this is a large cohort of asymptomatic healthcare workers who were routinely tested every two weeks by PCR for SARS-CoV-2 infection. Participants also had antibody testing once each month. Their vaccine history was obtained through registers. At the time of the trial, which started in June 2020, each participant was assigned to either a previously infected or uninfected cohort based on antibody testing and medical records. They were followed for the primary outcome, PCR confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection regardless of symptoms. Each participant could move from the uninfected to the previously infected cohort 90 days after a positive PCR test. There were a lot of moving parts here, so the statistical analysis was a bit complex, but essentially, risk of infection was calculated over time for each status, uninfected, uninfected and vaccinated, previously infected but not vaccinated, and previously infected and vaccinated. And then what did they conclude? Let me start with the makeup of the sample. Most of the participants were women, but most of those who'd been previously infected were younger and more likely to be Black, Asian, or a member of an ethnic minority. By the end of the study in April of 2021, almost every participant had received two doses of one of the two vaccines available in the UK, BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine, or Chadox1, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Both vaccines were effective, though the Pfizer vaccine was considerably more effective than the AstraZeneca vaccine. The actual values are a bit difficult to compare with those from other studies, since the dosing interval varied considerably among individuals. In general, the Pfizer vaccine produced higher levels of immunity than the AstraZeneca vaccine, though both declined in effectiveness over time. In the cohort of those who had been previously infected, most of whom had been infected in the spring of 2020, the efficacy against the risk of reinfection was estimated to be about 86%. Again, this declined with time, although perhaps more slowly than in vaccine recipients. It's difficult to compare these numbers with one another. The infections and vaccinations occurred at different times and the groups were very heterogeneous. Altogether though, it seems as if the magnitude of the benefit from previous infection is similar to vaccination, at least during the period of observation. Importantly, this all was done before the Omicron variant was circulating, so it's a bit difficult to extrapolate to the situation today. One of the questions raised by this study is what happens to people who are infected and then vaccinated? And the study, in fact, addressed that to some extent. But in addition, we have a second study from Israel, which specifically focused on that question. And what do we learn from this Israeli work? This study comes from Klalit, which is the largest HMO in Israel. And it's been a source of a good deal of the information on vaccine effectiveness that we have today. This was a retrospective study, which looked at people who recovered from COVID-19 and went on to receive vaccine at least 100 days later. 
The goal was to compare the rate of infection among those who are vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine, which was the only vaccine used in Israel at the time, and those who did not receive any vaccine. Unlike the previous study, we do not know why patients presented for testing, but presumably they were symptomatic. The study extended until near the end of November of 2021, again, before the onset of the Omicron wave. This study included almost 150,000 participants with a little more than half receiving the vaccine. Altogether, there are about two and a half reinfection cases per 100,000 person years among the vaccinated participants and more than 10 per 100,000 among those who did not receive the vaccine. The differences were somewhat less striking among those who were older than 65. Most patients in this group received only a single dose of vaccine. In a secondary analysis, it appeared that a second dose didn't add much in the way of effectiveness, though the numbers were small. Of course, this study has the drawbacks of a retrospective study. As I said, we don't know why people were tested, and the vaccinated and unvaccinated groups could differ in their tendency to report symptoms and to present for testing. Nevertheless, this study does suggest that vaccination has a benefit for those who are previously infected, though the magnitude of that benefit might be somewhat less than for those who were never infected. Importantly, the study did not look at disease severity, so there may be other benefits that they didn't measure. So Eric, these two studies raise very important types of data for us to consider, but real world data are very challenging to interpret. The definitions of what infection means, the reasons for testing, who received vaccine and who were infected are not random. And therefore they introduce biases that are difficult to easily account for. However, these data do tell us how infection and vaccination intersect, a very important set of considerations as we move forward with such broad community infection and vaccination. A issue which underlies some of these data, which is hard to fully illuminate, the concept of original antigenic sin. What immunogen are we exposed to first? How does that direct the immune response? Is it vaccine-elicited immune response against the spike? And in that case, against which spike? The ancestral strain? Or is it more important to have a more recent strain to be exposed to? But also, with natural infection, there's a broad array of antigens that one is exposed to. So that the sequence of these events, vaccination followed by natural infection or natural infection followed by vaccination, may have very different consequences and implications for the immune imprinting and then the subsequent immune boosting. Issues that are hard to tease apart but will become important as we go forward to understand what type of community immunity we have and how do we augment it to be most protective now that we are likely going forward with a mix of large swaths of our community with vaccine and wild-type antigen exposure in some sequence. Lindsay, I think you're getting at the complexity of what we're looking at. Of course, these are real-world data, and whatever happened, happened. And trying to apply them to an individual is problematic. You talked about the sequence of events that is required for an immune response. So, for example, what happens if someone receives vaccine, which was designed for 
the original antigen, the original spike protein, and then gets infected with Omicron, a variant which has many, many changes relative to the vaccine strain. One could imagine that you could have broader immunity, but the sequence of events is very different from the person who is represented largely in the last study, in the Khalid study, people who were infected a long time ago with the original strain, and then were vaccinated against the original strain. And so those people saw a broad array of viral antigens first, and then were boosted against a specific antigen. Whereas the sequence of events and the timing for someone who was vaccinated and then infected is very different. And we don't know what happens to the boost that they get, basically. And you've introduced into that, Eric, yet another variable, which is time interval. Vaccine followed by infection over weeks versus months or a year, or the converse. And that temporal interval may also be important. I think as we go forward, how the virus, SARS-CoV-2, continues to diverge from the ancestral strain and which viral variants become established and continue to evolve, propagate, diverge, and spread will have significant implications on the background immunity that is now within our communities. And whether Omicron is a blip or the future variants are the progeny of Omicron, or are the future variants the progeny from something more closely related to the ancestral strain? This brings in that complexity, Eric, that you were raising, that as we think about how we respond to SARS-CoV-2, these changing parameters are part of what we as a scientific and clinical community need to understand so we best design, develop, and position countermeasures like monoclonals and vaccines. I do think this study, though, or these sets of studies and similar studies that are out there do answer a common question that patients are asking their physicians right now. If I've been infected in the past, should I get vaccinated again? The answer from these studies appears to be yes, that there is an advantage And although the absolute risk difference may be small, it's real. And also, there doesn't appear to be a safety issue with getting boosted. The second question, which is, when do you get vaccinated after you've been infected? How long after? I think that remains a question. And I don't think we have much data to drive us. We have to fall back on what we know about immunity and say, you should wait a little while. But how long that while is, isn't exactly clear. And your point, Eric, I think is probably the most important, which is the current vaccines still bring out meaningful immune responses against the current circulating strain, such as Omicron. So that using vaccination, particularly in the context of prior immunity from either vaccine or natural infection, does bring out an immune response that is beneficial. It's a small benefit compared to the background immunity but an important benefit as we try to combat the significant morbidity associated with Omicron and the current circulating variants. Shifting gears, today we also published the long-awaited results of a trial of a new antiviral, nirmatrelvir. What is this agent and how is it administered? Unlike the small molecule drugs that are in use now, nirmatrelvir was specifically designed to block SARS-CoV-2 replication. It's an inhibitor of an essential viral protease, a mechanism that's shared by several other classes of antivirals. 
However, the proteases of SARS-CoV-2 differ enough structurally and mechanistically from those of other viruses that a new drug had to be designed from scratch. Nermatrovir shares a different characteristic with many of the HIV proteus inhibitors, however. It's rapidly metabolized by a human cytochrome P450. Thus, to attain adequate exposure, it's administered together with ritonavir, a potent inhibitor of the human enzyme. Properly, then, the drug is the combination of nermatrovir, ritonavir, and the combination is marketed under the name Paxlovid. An important characteristic of this drug combination is that both are administered orally, making this agent a very reasonable treatment for outpatients. Nermatrovir is a very impressive drug development. This takes time when one does intentional drug development, targeting a known enzymatic or other pathway of a new pathogen. Part of the reason this type of molecule and its development has taken two years to come to fruition, as opposed to the immunologically targeted interventions. But it does show the value of intentional drug development versus repurposed drugs or drugs with a nonspecific mechanism. You know, we have struggled, particularly in the first year of the pandemic, with in vitro data suggesting a variety of compounds currently in clinical use, such as hydroxychloroquine, as potentially being active against SARS-CoV-2 based on in vitro data, where subsequent clinical studies have not borne out any benefit. So I think it is a tension that we as a community have to address is how do we deal with repurposed drugs, which are immediately available, manufacturable, safety profile understood, but not necessarily as active or as targeted to the pathogen of concern. I think the development of nermatrelvir demonstrates the value of targeted drug development. Lindsay, I agree with what you're saying. And I think that ironically, the path to developing biologics is often much faster than developing small molecules. And we've seen that in this disease where we have off-the-shelf small molecules followed by custom monoclonal antibodies, which can be made relatively rapidly. And then a long time after that come the custom-designed small molecules like nermatrovir. So getting back to this trial, how did it work? The investigators enrolled unvaccinated outpatients who had at least one risk factor for progressing to hospitalization and severe disease. All of them had to have symptoms and be PCR positive, and their symptoms had to have started within five days of enrollment, though the primary analysis was limited to those treated within three days and who were not given monoclonal antibodies. They were randomized to receive either the active drug combination or placebo. The primary outcome was a composite of the rate of hospitalization and death by day 28. The trial was planned to include about 3,000 patients. However, there was a planned interim analysis at which point the Data Safety Monitoring Board stopped the trial. This report includes the data that was seen by the DSMB and the additional results from the patients who were enrolled by the time the trial was stopped but had not yet completed follow-up. And what were the results? There were a total of more than 2,200 patients enrolled between the two arms. The drug was fairly well tolerated with few apparent severe side effects. In the drug-treated group, five patients out of almost 700 reached the composite endpoint with no deaths, while in the placebo group, 44 reached the endpoint, including nine who died. The relative risk reduction was about 90%. These results held up both for the interim analysis and across all patients who were treated 
and were similar in those who received treatment within five days of presentation. The results were also similar across various subgroups. Interestingly, in those who were found to have antibody to SARS-CoV-2, either because of prior infection or because they were later infection than suspected, the relative risk reduction was similar, but the absolute benefit was much smaller with an absolute benefit of about 1%. So this is a new tool for preventing the more severe complications of COVID-19. At this point, supplies are quite constrained and it's likely they will remain so for a while. Of course, although no drug resistance was seen in this trial, it might well eventually arise. So it will be important to try to limit the use of this agent to the most appropriate patients. Eric, I think there are several very salient points raised by this study and your description. First, the value of giving an antiviral early after infection. And in this study, they focused on three days and five days since symptom onset. I'm not convinced that the biology is such that the MABs, other small molecules, or nermetrovir actually have different biology in the impact on viral replication and the need to treat early. And whether three, five, seven, or 10 days are critical, I think earlier is better. We've seen this with influenza and across studies with antiviral agents that the earlier you treat, is likely important in preventing progression to more severe illness. Another important point that you note is the importance of understanding the relative effect versus the absolute effect. And we see this a lot in our vaccine studies with boosting and with other strategies to prevent progression of illness. In this case, the benefit in those who were seronegative at baseline was about 10% absolute points and in those who were seropositive at baseline, perhaps reflecting a little longer infection time, it was about 1%. Yet the relative benefit was similar between the two groups. A third point that I think is very important, and something we as a community have not done very well in my view, is testing and understanding how testing fits into our response to COVID. I mean that it's important from an infection control standpoint, from a minimizing transmission at schools, workplace, family members, and now the importance of having point of care or point of home testing so that one can be diagnosed as early as possible to help the clinicians make a determination if treatment makes sense and should be begun early with all activities potentially taking place in the outpatient environment, both from the testing as well as the prescription writing and accessing the treatment. And then lastly, which is a smaller point, but one that those of us taking care of patients have to consider carefully is the drug interaction issue, as you note with ritonavir, and making sure that in our patients who need and would benefit from early treatment, we understand what other medications they're on and how five days of low-dose ritonavir may impact these other medications, particularly those where there may be a clinically important drug interaction. So overall, very important data that hopefully will allow us to better take care of our highest risk patients, but several issues that we have to carefully weigh as we care for our patients. Lindsay, I just want to repeat one thing that you said, which was about drug-drug interactions. 
Ritonavir is a very potent inhibitor of this specific cytochrome P450. And as such, it blocks the metabolism of a very large number of drugs. So those interactions can be minor or they can be really severe. And it's going to be important to evaluate each patient individually in order to decide whether or not this is the right drug or whether or not there have to be other changes in drug regimens. I want to ask you about the role of the DSMB in stopping trials. Many COVID trials have been stopped before their final enrollment numbers are reached. And in at least one case, that came close to changing the results of the trial. So how should we look at these interim analyses? So Steve and Eric, as we've discussed before, I think that DSMBs, data safety monitoring boards, safety monitoring committees, structures put in place by the clinical study to provide oversight to enhance safety of the volunteers, I think are unsung heroes of clinical research, but particularly of this pandemic. They have been overseeing COVID trials with treatments with unknown risks, unknown benefits. And they see real-time data, you know, as cases occur, perhaps for safety, if unusual events occur. And they need to also weigh in on predefined time points to assess efficacy, again, to minimize the risk to the volunteers. However, what also is at risk are premature decisions that could impact the development of a particular compound or pathway and how DSMBs weigh this while maximizing safety for volunteers is a very difficult process. And I have the utmost respect for our colleagues who serve in this role. With the pandemic, Steve, it becomes particularly tricky because as we have witnessed, many trials have been stopped early for efficacy, such as for BNT162B2, the mRNA-1273, molnupiravir, nermatrovir. And one of the challenges that we have to think about is that with many studies being done and many DSMB assessments across studies, how the play of chance is minimized both within a trial, but also as we think about it across trials is very vexing. So I think we owe those who serve on these committees a debt of gratitude and appreciation. And also we as a community then have to look at not only the interim analysis, but the full analysis and the totality of the data to best understand the safety and efficacy of these new therapies. Overall, they play a vital role, but we have to be careful about over-interpreting any given analysis, even a pre-planned critical interim analysis. Thanks, Lindsay. I agree that DSMBs are absolutely critical in how we do trials, and I give them a lot of respect for making what are often difficult decisions. Their goal is to protect patients who are within the trial, to prevent them from getting treatments that we already know are futile, or to allow placebo recipients to get active therapies when they're clearly superior. And that's the point of interim analysis, is to get a look at the data and make sure that the trial needs to go on to answer a question. However, every trial was designed to provide a certain power to answer a question. When it stopped early, there is less power in that study. And so I think we have to be very careful with interim analyses because they often are not as convincing as the trial might have been had it continued. 
And as editors, we are faced with trials, not infrequently, which were stopped before a clear answer could be established. So I think it's important to have interim looks at data, but it's also important when we consider the results that we take into account what was changed about the trial by having an interim analysis. Eric, I think you frame very nicely the tension. And I think as a community, the DSMB's primary job is to enhance the safety of the volunteers. And that's an important structure for us as a community to have confidence that volunteers in studies are getting the best possible treatment given the state of the science, realizing things may change over the months of a trial's duration. And we as society have to weigh the final results of the trial, be it stopped early and underpowered, as you note, to determine how confident are we that the findings point us in the right direction in terms of risk benefit. Very challenging arena, implicit in clinical research, but I think a very important set of structures that increase our confidence that we really take care of volunteers who participate in these studies and put themselves at risk to help us as a community know what the right answers are. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.